Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room number 350. Fifty. It is our fourteenth quarter quell uh, as this show. Uh, we do one every twenty-five episodes. Uh, this one in particular is for the week of Wednesday, May twenty-sixth, twenty twenty-one, and it is going to be a quarter quell celebrating the summer movie season, which we hope that uh, some of you could maybe partake in this year. Uh, and as we crawl our way out, uh, fully vaccinated. Out of a global pandemic. We hope that all of you are fully um, vaccinated or will be soon. Whether you choose to go see movies is up to you. That is absolutely true. Uh, we're definitely in favor of your personal choices and freedoms. We didn't discuss this before, but I, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm pro-vax. That, that I, I mean, pro-vax. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we're going to talk about uh, summer movies uh, that we've enjoyed uh, from the past. Uh, spoiler alert, if you listened to last week's episode, you know all these movies. Three of them are from uh, the 90s, and the last one is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. We are going to go chronologically through them. The topic was summer movies that we'd enjoyed. We're going to each have little personal stories tied to them, because that's how we do these quarter quells. If you want to go to fightinginthewarroom.com and click on a little pull-down menu and click the quarter quell button, you could access all the quarter quells, even ones that aren't those 14 that I mentioned that we recorded back when we were called Operation Kino. But... Let's let's kick off this quarter quill right off the top uh, with a very slight movie that was my pick, which is uh, The Mask, starring Jim Carrey. It was released in 1994. Uh, as opposed to some other movies we'll be talking about this episode, uh, the world is not at stake. Uh, there's not a lot of... Uh, fan- there is fancy CGI for 1994, but it is not used to destroy... Uh, temples or buildings uh, or anything like just that. Just apartment Instead, building walls and... Just mm-hmm. apartment building Statues walls. And such. Car garage. Instead, it, it's, it's a little bit of paste that's needed to make uh, Jim Carrey into a living cartoon, which is the premise of the mask. He plays Stanley Ibkiss, a man who works at the bank and has a fine life, really, but it's just a little <laughs> boring, and he can't get in to the local swing club uh, where this uh, very attractive blonde that he meets uh, while she's casing his bank uh, is going to debut. And uh, he gets left out of the club and he's very sad and it seems like the world's kind of shitting on him for being a nice guy. But he does discover a wooden mask that imbues him during the nighttime hours when he puts it on with the ancient god Loki that allows him to basically treat his body like his car- like a cartoon. And truly, who among us has not been there? No. Yeah, really. Yeah, I, this made uh, me think back to my 20s when I was putting on the Loki mask every night and going, uh... And going to swing club. And going out. <laughs> uh, this movie came out when I was 10. Uh, uh, Jim Carrey was king as Ace Ventura Pet Detective. What was the uh, order of the big... 1994 year. was huge for Jim Carrey because it was yeah, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, and The Mask all in one year, right? But what was the actual order of, of that? Ace Ventura... Mask, which he had already signed on to do before. I was about to say, this feels like a movie made before Jim Carrey got famous and like more Earth Girls is Easy era Jim Carrey in a weird way that I did not remember. But yeah, pre-fame. Even though it's such a huge vehicle uh, for him, like it's like a, 
an in living color sketch made for him. Yes, yes. Although it yes, feels like a TV movie more than I could have remembered mm. too. Like the scope of it is very small, and the car- yeah. like, the direction. I think there's like four sets in the whole movie that keep rota- rotating: yeah. the club, the bank, well, they- the apartment, outside. Yeah, but I mean, they spent yeah. all their money on uh, on the CGI, on the which at the yeah. time was pretty incredible. Yeah, it looks really cool. The uh, director of this, Charles Russell, was originally hired by New Line to make a mask horror movie to adapt to be like a sequel to their Nightmare on Elm Street franchise because he also did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. And they were like, uh, The Mask is this uh, comic book that it's a splatterpunk period, which is basically in the 80s where you wanted to be like cool and edgy by drawing a lot of violence. Also, some very cool art came out of that. Uh, One of those comic books was The Mask where uh, Stanley... Ipkiss was basically, you know, a proto-incel, and uh, when he puts on the mask, he just straight up uh, kills people. Instead, Charles Russell decided that he was going to make a musical, uh, which was his goal. He only ended up getting two musical numbers in The Mask, but still more musical numbers than you would expect in a movie like The Mask. Uh, and the movie does have a lot of good uh, swing needle drops, uh, really encapsulating that period in America at the time where we were going through a very brief uh, swing That's, resurgence. We had pre- uh, before the podcast, I talked a little about like the the costuming and the club, and you kind of us wondering like, did clubs like this exist? Why is this taking place in a club out of out of no era? And yeah, I, I, certainly when I saw this movie back in the '90s, never connected the dots between the swing revival and the mask. But it's absolutely <laughs> is, that, is that true? Well, the mask. Yes. If, if it if they are connected, the mask was really on the vanguard of that. Because yeah, because like, like the Mighty Mighty Revival and Ernie no. like '97. No, well, swing, the Mighty Mighty Bostones are more ska, Katie. That I we're uh, thinking Brian Setzler Orchestra yeah, is like yeah, yeah. late '80s, early the, '90s. When did and the Gap Khakis ad come out? That's late '90s. Yeah, it's like that's when I associate the Swing no. Revival. Swing Revival, early '90s. Okay, Brian Setzler Orchestra, for sure. This is this is firmly. Swing revival, I think, in a weird way. Like, this movie, why is this movie? I guess because he wanted to make a musical, and that was what Chuck was into. But it also feels <laughs> kind of like a horror movie, too, in the beginning. It feels like a movie that may have been reshot a whole bunch. Well, I mean, it um, definitely wasn't reshot a lot. It might have been replotted several times as they're making it out, because basically the thing that it convinced him he could do this and the thing that convinced New Line they could do this is he watched In Living Color and he's like that guy, uh, I'm gonna go see his stand-up, saw his stand-up and he's like, we can save money instead of doing somebody like New Line wanted to cast, which I think was like Nicolas Cage uh, and uh, instead have this very expressive actor who will also be able to like improv uh, around this premise and a lot of that still like remains in the film. Do you think he was cast um, so based they, on his ability to like throw his arms over to the side and then run out of frame as if he's uh like on locomotive because that that really I think so. it sells it every time. Yeah, I think like if you see a lot of Jim Carrey's early improv, there's one uh section that I really like where he does impressions but only with his face. He doesn't do any vocal parts of it, so he'll just be like, "All right, Clint Eastwood, and he'll turn around, and he'll come back, and he'll be making the expression that's obviously Clint Eastwood because he's like Squinting. some sort of face comedic, comedic genius. So, like playing off of that, and then allowing him to basically do Tex Avery cartoons uh, is really great. I think this is a movie that is uh, like squarely at me at ten years old. Um, when I first saw it, 
uh, I was visiting my grandparents, and they then took me to the uh, City Walk off Universal Studios, uh, which has recently opened. And one of the centerpieces there when it first opened was a large uh, toy and magic and mask shop, and they bought me the mask from the mask, Mm. and I was psyched. Because I like screen accurate props, uh, and then that yes, I hello. Still do. I am a young boy, and I love screen accurate. props. I like screen accurate props. <laughs> I will tell you that that proton pack is not. This is the plastic. Side. This is inferior. Get me screen accurate wood. It doesn't even. It looks like the cartoon proton pack. I want the movie proton pack. Uh, but then also motivated me to uh, be the mask that Halloween, which came with like a green rubberized version and the yellow uh, jumpsuit uh, with the oversized uh, monochromatic tie. It was a zoot suit jumpsuit. It's an oversized zoot suit. Uh, it was pretty sweet. I was into the mask uh, and it led me to a lot of things. It led me to the comics and uh, Splatterpunk, which eventually led me to... Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, which would eventually pay dividends with Invader Zim on Nickelodeon by, like, the same creator. Uh, It led me to uh, find the original Cuban Pete by Desi Arnaz and sort of figure out his way into television before he was on I Love Lucy, which I already liked. So I'm I'm way into the mask. It's definitely taking itself... Uh, not an iota of seriously, uh, but I think the uh, one thing to go off of and maybe throw to you guys for other uh, either disagreements or hearty memories you enjoy uh, is that Cameron Diaz, this is her first film. She started being a model and then uh, started acting here and really does a great job at face acting opposite things that I'm sure she didn't understand <laughs> as a first time actress. Or, like, there's uh, probably a lot really... of things that a lot of people on that set were like, what yeah. is this going to be? Because, like, CGI is so new at that point. Like, what did they know that, like, what you could create with the All computer? the people playing gangsters in this movie are like, what the fuck are we fighting? Or why is Jim Carrey <laughs> wearing a green mask? Like, they could see that, and they would still probably have no idea what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave, how has this movie aged for you? I mean, I, I remember thinking it was basically the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, yes. Not that I was all involved <laughs> in the first coming. But I, I was big into it, and uh, I, you know, it, it obviously has a different, a different feeling to it now. It feels a lot more, or maybe I'm just older and more sensitive to all of its energy now than I was however many years ago. Uh, does it still enthrall you the way that it once did? I think it does. I was also a little worried, but I think that um, this movie. Uh, is really trying to be a family film, so even when it does sort of. <laughs> I guess get weirder. When Stanley Ipkiss doing... pulls a condom out of his pocket. Uh, yeah, yeah instead of like a balloon. Yeah. <laughs> but I just sort of that's a throwaway gag. There's the obviously the oversexualized Frenchman, which we would now cancel as Pepe Le Pew is here. <laughs> but I think it's all kept at like a level that I didn't have any problem revisiting it. I enjoyed it. I was more shocked by like. There's just straight up urine coming out of a dog's penis, like, I, just like a shot. I'm that glad that. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's typically where dog urine. Yeah, comes Yeah, but you from, don't see that a lot in movies record. where you get the complete underside of a dog piece, pissing toward camera. Yeah, or or cartoons. That stood out so me. it's not like it'd be based on like cartoons because it's a cartoon. You wouldn't see the dick. So it's you like, do get it every time you step outside your door in New York City. That's, that's true, fair. but not from the underside <laughs> of the dog. Uh, it depends how. This long is the amazing are, thing about know. movies; they can show us things that we never see from perspectives yeah. that we could never <laughs> I was, imagine. 
I was very anxious about the like nice guy nature of it because like basically what I remembered is that like Cameron Diaz is a nightclub singer, you know, and smoking and all that stuff, and like the, his coworker is super gross, like the guy who's just like send the hot ladies to me at the oh, bank. Oh man, like he's he's yeah, that guy is bad. That guy offsets all any incel behavior from yeah. Stan well, I think it's sure. not. Because it's not like Jim Carrey's character is like, this girl isn't paying attention to me and I'll become right. the mask. Like, it's not about that. Like, it's it's his motivations are much more wrapped up in, like, you know, he, he's kind of scared of the mask and, like, then he's trying to stop the gangsters. Like, it's not about, like, I'll get the girl to like me by being this, like, weird, uh, sexually aggressive mask man. Um, I, so, I don't know. It's certainly maybe not even intentional, but it aged better for that, for the way they handled it. I was, uh, even though like the, you see Cameron Diaz's boobs before you see her face. I was about to say that first shot of Cameron Diaz definitely took back, took me back to the nineties um, yeah. when I was learning what sexuality was and boy, oh boy. <laughs> uh, Katie, did you, do you think Cameron Diaz is smoking in this movie or like, is she beautiful would you use or is she good? Would you use it? a different description? <laughs> no. uh, uh, either, both. Uh, yeah. I, I would use the uh, dog with the tongue hanging out of his mouth at the, uh, okay, the, yeah. no, on she's the gorgeous. scale. She's, She's like unbelievably beautiful. I definitely remember. I mean, you know, I remember seeing movies like this when I was a kid, being like, "So that's what girls are supposed to look like." Okay, that's the goal. And oh, like, damn. it takes a lot longer to like, learn. I'm that sorry, that's not what you reality. Is. Felt the you same way about looking at Jim Carrey yeah. in the mask. No, it's true. Yeah, like, the, that is the ultimate yellow, masculine the, the ideal. Yellow suit is exactly what you're supposed <laughs> to get. Green face, yellow suit. Can I talk for a second about the Cuban Pete number though? Because I had completely forgotten about that part, and it gets to this part yeah. where it's like a police standoff, and he starts performing and gets all the cops to dance with him, and it's really charming and i think now we've been trained so much more to see like cops in movies with the night skepticism justly so and i just like completely fell for this part of it and couldn't believe i didn't remember it because it's like it turns into a musical for a hot second and it's great but the movie's not funny what let me throw what that out here that, my, that's my wow. hot take about the mask in 2021 i laughed I wasn't, a lot watching i wasn't that. laughing a lot it's not like ace ventura or dumb and dumber this is not I like seeing elastic Jim Carrey doing weird ass things, and this movie's not that weird. It's definitely a spectacle, but it, I I actually think Jim Carrey doesn't get to do a whole lot. That seems weird considering the mask and all of the big extra things that he does. Um, but I I, didn't, I wasn't laughing a lot. Did I was you, more did you know, just taken by the, the effects Cuban, actually? Did you hear me talking about the whole musical number he does in I front know. of a, a giant crowd? Like, I believe <laughs> yeah, he does of, a lot there. Or uh, all the improv scenes where it's just him and a dog doing endless takes until they get one that's charming enough. Like, Actually, my favorite scene in, in this rewatch was when Stanley has a dream that has nothing to do with putting on the Loki mask whatsoever, but he reimagines himself running into Cameron Diaz outside the, cu- outside the club and like is cool version of Stanley Epkiss. And yeah. there's this whole scene where he's like flicking the cigarettes and the car drives up behind him. And that, that is like perfect Jim Carrey doing an impression, <laughs> doing his form of comedy and it has nothing to do with putting on the mask. I, I was, I was kind of blown away by that. Speaking of the dog, I think a recurring theme in this episode, is going to be about computer effects <laughs> and the, what they can and cannot do these days. Uh, and, and I, you know, as someone who recently watched Cruella, uh, I cannot tell you how much of a difference it makes to watch something that ha- obviously there are special effects going on with the dog at points, but to have a real, I was going to say a real human dog, but you know what I mean. A real human dog. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, but a, a, a real dog of flesh and blood. Um, and it may have taken, you know, 73 different takes to get it to, 
sync up just right and for the dog and Jim Carrey to both be interacting with each other in a funny way. But whatever whatever sort of frustration was required to earn the don't work with with masks and dogs uh, <laughs> uh, maxim, it, it is worth it. Because uh, even now in 2021, you lose more than you can ever hope to make back using digital animals. And I know that there, there are also like, there are also reasons in terms of uh, you know, kindness to the animals of, sure. of shifting away from animal pets. And that is something I'm cognizant of, but uh, I also cannot tell a lie that in the here and now, in terms of the actual experience of watching a movie, not to say it's worth it, um, man, is there a big difference? Yeah. The whole uh, act, uh, comedy sequence where he's mistaken the cheese for the keys is all dog <laughs> comedy acting. That scene is really funny. And it's worthwhile. Dave, as an adult, you are obsessed with animation and I think it can be difficult for you to look past certain animated qualities or animated decisions in the movies you watch, even with visual mm. effects. I imagine this was not the case with young Dave, who was completely smitten by the mask. But I'm wondering, does like the animation of it all hold up for you? Because I was I was surprised. One thing I did not remember at all about the mask was that he actually watches Tex Avery cartoons. This is a mm-hmm. new line movie. This is a WB sponsored pre Space Jam cartoon crossover moment where we get actual Tex Avery shout outs. Um, and the and the animation is trying to live up to that. Do you think it does a good job? Do, do the effects of the movie hold up, which is what this whole movie is about, essentially? I think they, they're they as smart with it as they can be. Because, first of all, Carrie's wearing, like, false teeth, like, four-hour makeup process. That really helps. They have the visual effects supervisors uh, on set for all of the shots that they needed, which still, you know, amazingly wasn't being done uh, for every big movie shoot in 1994. Uh, and they chose, uh, like, really bright. He's yellow and green in, like, colors that you're never going to see in real life. And he's doing cartoon motions that you have seen because you've seen Tex Avery cartoons. And I think Jim Carrey's able to bridge the gap between most of them. Uh, it does, towards the end, get a little weird uh milo the dog as the mask isn't as great as we'd be able to do like now and uh the mask swallowing the bomb is like one of the jankiest stretch effects in in the movie but i do think that it builds consistency up to that to by the time you're getting the crazy stuff like the bomb swallowing and the dog you've already bought in to the cartoonishness of the mask. I think they were very they smart. They also about had to give effects. the son of the mask uh, some room for improvement. Oh, yeah, that's true. They had to, you know, at least let the CG be better. Do do Jamie Kennedy a favor. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, I dig it. I still think it's uh, not available to stream anywhere. No. But if you happen across a copy of the mask or want to buy or rent it, uh, I suggest it. It's Wait, nice Dave, and soft. before it's we move friendly. on, do, do you remember anything about the first time you saw it? Uh, outside of like what I thought of the actual movie, were you with your grandparents? No, like where? What? What? What was Wait, the? Did the you, did you like? see it at the Universal there, City Walk, or did you just get the mask the at the Universal City? Walk? I saw it with them, and then I got the mask at the City got Walk. It. Do I remember anything about specifically seeing the movie? No, but this is a time period where by the time I got to the fall. So this is like a July movie. By the time I got to the fall, the catchphrases from the movie were now my catchphrases in school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like I never saw the That's a Spicy Meatball Alka-Seltzer commercial that I can ever recall. When I say that, I'm talking about the mask. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, I was laughing at this movie, remembering the jokes and then also remembering like my brother and his friends, like saying these lines over and over and over again. It's just so I like I think a 10 year old boy now would still like it. Probably. I was kind of half tempted to show it to Charlie, even though he's four and like <laughs> right, not quite process for him. But yeah, like you, you just see how it just clicks right into a kid's brain. I feel like it would be like serving Charlie like 10 I know. Between the cartoons, Cameron Diaz, and just like rampant gun violence at the end of this movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a lot of gun violence. I don't know. Uh, Do you really want your son running around the house going, somebody stop me? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you do. We'll let Charlie watch uh, of these four uh, shortly. Yeah, that uh, that's probably a good choice. But let's probe that, I guess, with uh, probe. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say uh, a movie that is also silly, but in a good way. Uh, we are going to go with David's pick next. David, introduce us to Independence Day. The year was 1996. It was the summer. <laughs> it was hot, and a young David Earl, like then, 11 years old, 12 years old. I guess I turned 13 in the. Ball. How does math work? I was born in 1984. My brain is fried. I was somewhere. I was. I know where I was though, if not when, uh, which was up in the, the wilds of Maine mm. at a camp called Wildwood, where every second was agony. Wow. Uh, truly the most <laughs> miserable experience of my entire life to this day. Uh, and that sounds like someone who's had uh, something that someone who's had a blessed life might say, but I think you would be underestimating Can just how Can you explain that just a little bit? Is it because it was me. outdoors? Is it because of the theme of the camp? What what was agonizing here? Uh, both of those reasons you cited, Family Feud style, are on the okay, board, great. for sure. Uh, I, I, outdoors wasn't a big thing for me, even though I wasn't a terrible athlete. I was surprised. I was very good at hockey and I had a street hockey team. My skills were able to translate over, making me sort of the one, the one area of camp where I was able to make any sort of inroads whatsoever. A street was hockey on the team at camp street hockey team. funny. It feels like an oxymoron. It was, a, it was a sports themed camp, which of, even though I wasn't like a terrible athlete was still probably not have been my first choice of camp. Even then I would have been like, send me to, Oh, by the way, it was all boys. Ooh. So I would have been like, send me to a co-ed camp. It's like focused on the arts or something. And maybe you incidentally play sports um, and not like fucking Lord of the flies uh, <laughs> camp where it's like, everyone is just trying to drown each other in the drills in the morning competitions the- for food at night. Okay. Oh my God. We, every, after every canoe trip, it would be like mayor of East town trying to figure out which kids didn't come back and why. And it was, okay. it was really a grim time. And, uh, you know, not unlike Lord of the flies that, that summer, something, I can't remember the particulars of it. Um, I remember feeling like it, it was not my fault, but the mood in my bunk turned. Um, there was there, there needed to be a scapegoat for something. And I think just because I was so obviously having a miserable time, it w- I, I was sort of nominated. And by the time August rolled around and we went home after eight long weeks, uh, I remember everyone deeply hating me, which is someone who goes through life, uh, you know, and this might be a surprise to people who have only known me through this podcast, where I can be a little bit more abrasive. But for the most part, I'm one of those people who really needs to be liked uh, and behave accordingly, um, at least in real life. And uh, so that was a strange experience. David, I definitely thought this was only something that horrible bunks full of girls did because that absolutely happened to me at uh, my uh, outdoorsy summer camp. Um, within I found Nerd Camp and was much happier, but I don't have a movie story associated with it. Oh, Katie, I, I wish that I'd found Nerd Camp. And the thing was, this is my second summer at this Ugh. camp. I'd gone back 
after the first <laughs> one, which is only four weeks long. And I said to my mom, like, please, mom, please don't send me back there. You don't know what they're going to do. And she was like, you you shut the fuck up and go. No, I love my mom, but she was like, she was like, you know, you're you're reacting to this too suddenly. Your sister's been to this one camp for like seven summers in a row and she's like queen of fucking summer camp and you should try it one more time and go for a full summer rather than just a half summer. Um, and I could not prevail upon How her. How long were you there a for? a doubly bad idea. For oh my weeks. God, that um, is a long I remember every one of those weeks. I remember more about that camp than I do entire years of my life just based <laughs> on how uh, particular, with like the particular agonies that I suffered while I was there. But there was one highlight uh, of the summer, which is uh, in the right at the beginning of July. I, I, maybe it was June thirtieth. It was either July first or June thirtieth of nineteen ninety six. Uh, they loaded us into a bunch of vans, um, and you know, in my experience, this camp so far that I had already sort of tensed, experience expecting some sort of like bear gorillas like throw you <laughs> into the wild and like seven, eight kids enter and seven come back situation, and. Uh, and instead, and I was, I guess, already, I was already like an entertainment weekly reading nerd kid in training and uh, already must have had some sort of affinity for the movies. Um, I had already had my formative Jurassic Park experience, which I've talked about in this podcast, um, and was a year removed from skipping school at the age of 13 so I could be first in line at the 10 a.m. screening of The Lost World the day that it opened um, with my parents' permission. They They were kind enough about that it was field day anyway um but yeah so i i i I was deeply miserable i sat alone in the back of the bus and the buses drove over state lines to new hampshire somewhere and they pulled into a movie theater and said that we were going to be seeing independence day like two days early not that early or late really meant anything in a pre-internet world uh where you were living in a remote you could write your ain't it cool woods news name. review early <laughs> and get it on there. right but as as someone who had been under the impression that i wouldn't get to see independence day which had this incredible marketing campaign like a year which cost long untold millions campaign. of dollars yeah, yeah id4 mm-hmm that yeah, means oh independence so the, day. the hype was one of the reasons I'm sure that I was extra miserable to be going away this summer was knowing that I wasn't going to be able to see Independence Day until August. Um, and so this was doubly sweet for me. And they packed us into this small New Hampshire movie theater and they showed a bunch of 12 and 13 year old kids Independence Day. Uh, and for two and a half hours of watching the earth get absolutely scorched by an alien menace. I was happy for the only time in the course of an entire summer of my life, even though I was at that age still, I wasn't scared of the movie. I wasn't certainly wasn't scared watching the movie, but I do remember being at back at camp and looking over the vast lake where we would swim, you know, fanned out from, (laughs) from the camp and just imagining what, and I think I was doing this even before we saw the movie, imagining one of those spaceships just hovering over the camp and one like with, with a lot of terror, but also a a pang of relief (laughs) that the summer would be coming to an end sooner. Um, And uh, I'm glad my mom has listened to this podcast. I've given that woman enough grief over the years about sending me back to the second year. Um, Good natured, (laughs) but like she knows that it was hard for me. Uh, But yeah. And I think like what, you know, beyond the circumstances of it all, what really resonated with me about ID4, as uh, it has come to be known, and, and why it is a movie that I've seen 9,000 times on cable, maybe not quite with the frequency and certainly not with the ardor of Titanic um, uh, to go with another blockbuster from around the same time. Um, but 
a lot. One of the reasons it holds up is just because of the grandeur of it and the pace that it has and the time that it takes. And I think, ironically, for a movie that was such a big event because of how it sort of married uh, the new capabilities of of animation and computer special effects could do with the sci-fi of it all. And we're able to bring the aliens front and center and have them make this big dramatic entrance in a way that you could, I mean, you know, movies like the day the earth stood still and definitely flirted with and things of that nature, but it, it, you weren't really able to go as full bore as you were in independence day, knowing that the special effects were going to um, be spectacular enough to hold it up and, and, you know, achieve the sense of awe. Um, But uh, the irony is that even though it was just a special effects extravaganza then, I think it's also because of the limitations of the technology that it still feels like such a human uh, story that's so sort of uh, focused on its characters and actually put some weight behind the special effects that it does use rather judiciously. Uh, I mean, I, there were so many things wrong with the Independence Day sequel that Roland Emmerich would be the first person to throw his hands in the air and tell you that that movie was kind of fucked from the get-go. But it is a really easy example when you compare the two to see how cgi has become this crutch in modern hollywood it's something anyone listening to this podcast i mean cgi is not even the problem with the independence day sequel it's it's no it is not but when you story way but when you absolutely but when you have to use it with such care and when you really understand the spectacle and the awe that it's going to generate from an audience and when you you match it with models all independence day blowing up Models of the White House and blowing Those up models, models of the Empire State. They look so amazing. I mean, it cool. turns out They're that so the cool. are so cool. It turns out that the most unrealistic thing about this movie is that you can blow up the Capitol and uh, there will actually be consequences. <laughs> that's that's really the big. The aliens even seem to be uh, more realistic. I don't now, know. It seems like it seems like uh, the Capitol being assaulted and virus-based consequences have been uh, you know uh, woven. We've been we've been on that road already. It's just it's different. It's the same thing over and over again. David. Why did they we'll always have the aliens come? Blow why up did the aliens out. need to blow up Los Angeles? <laughs> why did is... they go to L.A.? <laughs> um, they... Well, they go to all the major cities, yeah, but there go... there are. I guess. I mean, they go to like Houston what? and stuff. Like they're all over the place. Yeah. Well, no, they 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 talk. Well, it Houston, through. they got lost, and it's they were like, just trying to make the best of it. There's three <laughs> American things, and they go like for New York, reasons. Washington, L.A. And then they just yeah, game start checkmate, right? And then they go, then they go to the military bases, which you would think maybe those first, but I guess surprise attack, because no one's gonna notice the countdown you've embedded in their own satellite system. Certainly, well, okay. no okay. one except for Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. The the greatest character uh, in this movie is Jeff Goldblum, and here's why: uh, because he is the one created to be there. And then justifies it, even though he's like, "Why are we following around this cable guy?" And it's like, <laughs> "Cable guy." At some point, it's like, "Oh, okay, they embedded it in the cable. That's cool." Oh, he's also like in a, a separation that is still full of love with the White House press secretary. So then he has to be with the president. Okay, that's cool. And his dad. And at the Don't end, his dad gets to come too. One, yeah. one well, of the the, uh, in, the first things they teach the, you in screenwriting school is as long as you say your character went to MIT, they can literally do anything at any point. That's the, that's the well, but then the, da- the dad's the trigger to go to Area 51, and then the dad's the trigger for the cold, which is the virus. Mm-hmm. The entire Jeff Goldblum character—it's like well, we're going to talk about deep He's impact Forrest in a little Gump bit, which for the alien, which invasion. also picks you know picks some people that we have to stick with because of who they're going to be later on after the disaster. But Jeff Goldblum is just unimportant in the beginning and really not important at the end. Like I feel like any person who would have had like a the idea of what a network was—if you could connect to an alien network—if Jeff Goldblum could connect 
connect to an alien network. I'm going to assume anybody could connect to an alien network <laughs> because the ch- the guy who's working for, you know, the cable broadcaster uh, Manhattan branch is not going to be the guy that hacks the alien code. But Dave, do you know the moment where he transitions from being just this like, you know, MIT grad who is in the right place at the right time and, and becomes the fulcrum of the entire movie? There is a particular moment and I can quote it for you right now. When he says checkmate? It's when... No, it's when Harvey Firestein goes, David! David! <laughs> suddenly the gravity of the entire world just sort of shifts and he is suddenly becomes the most important character uh, to the fate of humanity. David, but wait, you did your shitty the... campers just yell that at you after seeing Independence Day or were they not oh, uh, clever I, enough I to do have. Harvey No, we were all named David. Oh, right, it was the 90s. We were all like annoying little Jews named David and uh, <laughs> this movie, you know, we all felt seen. Um, and I uh, it was really, it was really powerful. Um, but I mean, the cast of this movie is also like they all have such personality. All these characters, in addition just to the star power of people playing them. Of course, I'm talking about Randy Quaid in one of his final uh, sane performances. Not that he is playing a sane character, but like as a human being, it, was at least keeping his craziness close insane? to the chest. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, and there was after this, there was at least uh, Brokeback Mountain, and then it was truly off the deep end with him. I was recently watching The Last Detail on the Criterion Channel, which was in 1971 or three, and he, Randy Quaid is like 21 years old, and it's kind of mind Do you think there's a connection? Um, Wait, quick Randy Quaid aside here. So Randy Quaid is in this movie, and he is, you know, he's pretty conspiratorial. Um, and then you you have... You think he got it from this well, movie? Well, you that have like Adam Baldwin. Going down the right Adam idea. Baldwin is also in this movie, and he mm-hmm. is a huge, like, conspiracy nut mm-hmm. and then i actually think roland emmerich is a huge conspiracy nut like a oh, guy who what definitely thinks 9 11 was an inside job what about the guy who made the movie about how shakespeare didn't actually write his plays makes you think he yeah, that all of his movies though well, because the stargate I mean, thing there, the stargate are, thing is like is aliens really created the, the pyramids <laughs> there, there is a large contingent of serious people who uh believe the same sure about shakespeare. Roland, I, I believe um, roland no i think he just likes a conspiracy he a lot of his movies have to do with conspiracy i mean even white house down has a conspiracy element to it which is does the white house keep that fucking awesome that uh that limo tank underneath it and does it have missiles around like there's a lot of conspiracies in this movie i'm just saying a lot of conspiracy you people also got, and conspiracies i don't know you also got harry connick jr who hollywood was conspiring to make a leading man mm. you got may whitman eventually mm. a power player in her own right. getting written out you got of the james sequel. duvall aka frank the bunny from donnie dargo you got uh, Brent Spiner, who's definitely a person I half thought about pretending that I knew who that was. You have Harvey Firestein. You have James the God Reb Horn. I feel like you got Vivica A. Fox. You got Robert Loggia. Mm-hmm. You got Judd. Oh, Judd. I'm just as oh, Jeff shit. Goldblum's father. Yeah. Please. Also, and then Mary to, McDonald, R.I.P. Not the actress, but the character. Credit to Judge Hirsch's line reading of David, though, because he animal. gets some good ones in there too. David. Harvey Firestone steals uh, my David. Oh, my David. David. The man, David. the man knows how to say David. David. Really the man, the man. Everyone's leaving Washington D.C. and we're going. You'd all be dead if it weren't for my David. <laughs> <laughs> Even you don't be dead if you're one for my David. I mean, Katie, absolutely. Who'd have think? Um, I, I, I think I'm in the you White actually House. Just have to send him ten cents as a residual, and we're all residual <laughs> for that one. Uh, and Bill Pullman, I think, probably gets some good Davids in there when he is like cockeyed, looking at him in the White House, like, yep. "What are you doing with my wife?" And also these aliens. Yeah. And then Will Smith is out there becoming the biggest movie star in the world. On top of all of this, this seven layer cake of great character actors. Uh, so. 
you got that going. But really, I think what just gets me about this movie, as I was alluding to earlier, is just the time that it takes to really set this up. And the aliens are all about that drama. They are messy intergalactic bitches who live for drama and want to like come through every room like they are the stars of the show. And they really, you know, they get that girl from Saved by the Bell, the new class, to go to the top of the tower in L.A. and look up like she's not about to get... <laughs> like blown into <laughs> alien dust um who could have foreseen uh you know they 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 put on a good show you got to respect that and yeah uh, even after that the movie doesn't tank which in so many of these movies back in the day when they actually did put time into the setup as soon as the big bad is revealed in some way uh, and the effects sort of take over things nosedive but in this movie they keep finding ways to have fun with it it feels like two movies um, in a and way and you get oh one of my favorite voice performances in this movie I'm sorry another impression I have to do is of course my friend David the alien I'm assuming his name's mm-hmm, David mm-hmm. everyone's movie his name is David when he goes release me <laughs> iconic line delivery um, isn't that Brett and, Spiner uh, doing that I love it it has to that was Brett Spiner yes yeah, he's in the no. sequel. Data. He's in the sequel, which makes no sense. I can't remember how they explain why he's in the sequel, but they bring him back. Brent Spiner or yes, the Brent alien Spiner. who says release? No, Brent Spiner Please. as uh, that dude. Yeah. I remember them making a whole thing mm-hmm. about it. Must have survived. Must have survived being choked and bludgeoned. Um, I have very vivid yeah, That's Brent Spiner. Yeah. Oh, I should put Katie. I'm sorry. Put some I should put some that respect name. on that yeah, name. Yeah, no, he's iconic because he he is fantastic. Yeah, no, he really he really sold yes. that moment. And at the time this movie came out, would definitely be the person everybody recognized from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Not oh look, Mae Whitman, future star. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did point at one point to Michael. You didn't see this movie in 1996 (laughs) and go, wait, isn't that the girl from Scott Pilgrim? Uh, I pointed pointed to her at one point and said, hey, look, it's Anne Hogg. And he was like, you just pointed to a child and called her Anne Hogg. I was like, well, it's who she becomes. (laughs) You'll get it one day. I wanted to say about the pace of this movie that I started. So Charlie was like staying up way too late. And I was like, you know what? You can watch a little bit of Independence Day. And like 15 minutes into the movie, those alien ships start showing up over the cities. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to tell you, like, this is fake, but I want you to see what happens when, like, the alien lasers hit. Like, he was, like, curious about it. I don't know, like, 45 minutes before it actually happened. Like, That's because hey, it's two really, movies. Yeah, it rules. It's a really movie and a sequel. Charlie turned to you, and he was like, he was like, Mama, this fucking rules. Yeah, he, it's awesome he, when movies I, I, take their time. He was into it. We were like, you know what? It's not real. This is a made-up thing. This is, You see what happens. And uh, he, like, I don't know. There's other stuff in it I don't know. He, I mean, the, the whole, like, Brent Spiner alien, like, taking over his throat thing. I don't want him to see that. That's legitimately scary. But... I think some like uh, alien destruction was right up his alley. Oh my god! That's right. Yeah, I'm no, afraid of Charlie quality, like, barging into parenting. your bedroom tomorrow morning and being like, "Welcome to nightmare, Earth." Bitch. I had a nightmare about a green laser blowing up our building. Also, the thing I noticed visually did- about this movie is we've learned how to uh, compose uh, aerial battle shots better. Mm. This, I think, is still um, going off the uh, amazingly working well. Uh, models doing dogfights a la Star Wars. So like the you know late the late seventies model Looks of visual a lot effects. Like Star Wars. Yeah. Polishes it up here really well. Like I'm pretty sure all those little alien ships and all the uh the jets, they're all miniatures for the majority of these fights. Uh the only There thing are that, some moments that betray that for sure. There there are a few. The only thing that uh really I think takes me out of it is I'm used to uh, the angles that I see both with like real jets uh, or with how we've been able to do CGI now to put more speed on it. Uh, it's hard to tell when they're fighting, you know, underneath the giant ships because that's built to sort of uh, 
fuck with your idea of speed and distance. But especially when Will Smith gets into like the canyon fight, I'm like, all mm. of these are like playing a little bit slow. I don't know if it's like we're doing it slow so we can see it better, or like if they actually did like turn down some sort of motion blur that would naturally occur. But uh, that was the only thing. Everything else in this movie, again, like the mask, they were just incredibly smart. Like giant ships that are entirely uh, kept in the sky where you could mask off the rest of not the sky. Like a brilliant idea. And then once the aliens uh, get seen, you really only get to see one. And it is the first thing it does is hit like the, you know, dry ice machine and steam up the entire room it's in. Just smart effects yeah. filmmaking. Your spaceships are actually powered by dry ice. It's something a lot of people didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful. Um, but, uh, but just to, to close this out with two thoughts, one of which I think is insane and has me questioning my own, uh, my own mind, is that I was watching the most flagrant Independence Day ripoff that has ever been made on cable last night, not for the first time, which is Battleship. And uh, Battleship, a movie that I truly hated in theaters. And, you know, maybe it was just because I was I was getting real hyped for Mayor of Easttown and uh, Uzo Duba's in treatment on HBO last night where Battleship was playing as the lead in. Because, of course, why would you program any other film as the lead into those two shows? (laughs) And I was... uh, I was kind of into it. I mean, kind of uh, Peter Berg, you got oh me for no. this one. I mean, maybe it's because it's the only movie ever made, I think, that co-stars uh, Jesse Plemons and Rihanna and also Liam Neeson and also Hamish Linklater and also <laughs> Brooklyn Decker and also the uh, rejected aliens from Independence Day. Uh, but they all approached her. They, their whole approach to Earth is very similar, but more aquatic in nature <laughs> otherwise it's essentially the same movie um and uh um yeah i don't know battleship not good but rihanna Certainly does say mahalo motherfucker this she does. Well. it is the welcome to earth of uh of it's a pretty good line yeah i i sort of like um misogynized that line up when i was saying it earlier i do not think that he throws on a bitch at the end of that one punching the alien in yeah. the face i think that would have been controversial for well, any time especially in the mid you know what's kind of crazy about that uh, line he is was like, like the family-friendly movie star like he says is that it's line, one of two punchlines like he, so he's punchlines like he, he has that he has that line and then he's like into so it like that happens really fast like the camera is moving it's like almost like a one-off of him saying welcome to earth and then he follows up with like a different line when he's like lighting his cigar oh he follows it up with saying, now that's what now I call that's a close, encounter. close encounter. They clearly thought that was going to be the line, but Welcome to Earth is the one that actually endured. I I didn't realize that. <laughs> and then I mean, I don't in know the if... edit, they're like, put them both in. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's like that, nothing that, happens that in between the two like, punchlines. It's like, no, just yeah. put, put both punchlines in. I mean, the delivery of both is just so special. Will Smith's I mean, delivery really... of all of those lines. I don't know if they're written. Like, I ain't heard no fat lady. Like, sure, maybe Roland Emlick wrote that, but it doesn't he could have just been something he made up. I could have been at a barbecue. I mean, Will Smith didn't even yeah. know he was in this movie until like five years later. <laughs> this was all just him reacting to, to aliens. Although, I, Will Smith, not, I believe, a Scientologist. That was a rumor going around for a little while. Um, but, and of course, that joke drafting off of the Tom Cruise didn't even know he was in interview with a vampire joke from Bowfinger. Um, but Will Smith, just a spiritual so man. Anyway, Independence Day holds up in, in the year 2021 for you? Independence Day holds up. I, I think just the last thing to close this out and bring it back to my camp experience, something that resonated with me about it was, was that feeling of homesickness and feeling like physically distanced from not, the, not necessarily even just the people that you love and that are home to you, but just like feeling severed from 
from this place of home and something that disaster movies have always, I think when done well have triggered that feeling of like physical remove and something about being at camp and being so intensely homesick, even though my parents and I, you know, I love my parents, but um, never have had like a, a friend relationship. It was like we were hanging out all the time, but I still felt them as sort of the foci of my homesickness. There's something about the way these characters are scattered around the country and the fight to get back to each other, particularly with the president and his wife, um, which is then sort of replaced by the fight to save humanity. But you really feel when the aliens come and there's this, there's this uh, big cataclysmic tragedy, the distance between people and how urgent that feels. And I think that even on this ridiculous cartoon scale is something that people can relate to really palpably. And some of us remember going through to, you know, to take this in a really dark swerve to, to what happened in the morning of 9-11. Uh, there are, uh, and even now I was thinking about it in terms of like going on my first work trip after the pandemic and being away from my child mm. for the first time. Um, and, um, you know, feeling that same sort of urgency and now going in a different direction, obviously, as the parent going back to the kid. But I think those feelings are kind of timeless and still resonate with me when I think of and watch Independence yeah, Day 4, the- Independence Day 4, Jesus, and um, Independence Day. And it's something important about why these movies can work on a human Not scale. Not to blow it up and, and send it in a different direction direction but um i mean one thought i did have watching this i had just watched the hurt locker before watching mm. independence day and i'm thinking a lot about uh Truffaut and the what and his thoughts on making war movies and every war movie being a pro-war movie and um you know you mentioned 9-11 and how you can bring that event that took place years after the making of independence day uh to independence day and i'm like is this movie about like stoking fear in others and like rah rah American and get get out of here aliens and just like I had a lot of weird well, feelings watching Independence Day and thinking the ironic the, thing about it the is fetishization the, of America the aliens are just the space Americans so here in 1996 where they're the imperialists uh, yeah they're trying yeah, yeah. to consume resources and then leave Bill Bill Pullman unironically says you know in the Gulf War we knew what we were doing and I'm like. Did you build Pullman? Because the aliens are about to come do the same fucking thing to you. Yeah, uh, I have to say the amount yeah. of like military bullshit in this, I kind of didn't remember how much of it was just like, yeah, the dog fighting, like, sir, yeah. is that glass bulletproof? No, it's not. Like, I didn't remember that part of it, and we'll get into a different apocalyptic movie that has less of that. Uh, I was less into that than uh, than I remembered. Uh, Roland Emmerich fetishizes America more than most American filmmakers <laughs> in a weird way. Like, yep. All of the movies, White House Down, from this to White House Down. It's very, very strange. And it did scan a little odd. I I haven't sat through this movie in a long time. I think I've seen Mm -hmm. bits and pieces on television or on HBO or whatever. um, But I can't remember the last time I sat down and watched Independence Day start to finish. And um, it's really, it is really fun. And it is, I think, and we'll get into this with the next movie too, but like 90s thrillers, the Michael Crichtons or the Tom Clancy's, like, I think that's the backbone of a lot of these successful movies that we we kind of like lost the plotting a little bit in blockbusters these days. And Independence Day certainly has that. Um, yeah. And a script helps, turns out. Mm-hmm. But what if Dom had a brother we hadn't met and John Cena played him? <laughs> Twist. Let's make 10 movies of that. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, speaking of uh, giant disasters, uh, let's pivot. Let's to talk Kingy, about David's which... career. Oh, I'm sorry. Ooh. Oh, 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 hey, oh, oh. It just he didn't even chime in the bird. Wait, wait, Patrick, yeah, Patrick did, real... did you go to camp with David in the nineties? Is that where this all started? <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, he back. He took me down in a uh, in a hockey game, and I'm, I'm coming back. <laughs> you know, just to put a cap on that story, quite literally, I did uh, in that camp. Uh, accidentally knock a kid's teeth out during a street Holy hockey shit. game with uh, like I hit him in the face wow. with a with the ball by accident with a shot. It completely, you know, his two adult front teeth just popped right out of his wow. mouth. Wow! Um, and well, consider my uh, inappropriate low pot camp. shot a, a retaliation in that. <laughs> this man's may, that may name. have been that may have been the start of uh, <laughs> my the people turning against me. But um, <laughs> I remember him leaving and being like, "All right, well, I'm never going to have to see him again." And then. Uh, during the first lacrosse game, we uh, <laughs> played a lacrosse game apparently in ninth grade. And who squares up on the face off across from me but the same kid? Whoa! All of the Jews from a certain part of the whole country were all being funneled into the same camp system. And I could tell who he was because I looked up and I saw a kid my age who had two obviously fake front teeth. <laughs> and it was Jim <laughs> it was, Carrey wearing it the was, mask. Uh, it was There's Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey anyway, the mask. somebody stop me. Never goes to his camp. Um, it's just like when Liz Lemon thinks that everyone in high school is mean to her for no reason, and then it flashes back, and you realize she was just like muttering mean things under her breath, and they were all scared. It was an accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, I think you have an illust- uh, illustrious career, so I take back my words, and uh, I'll, 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 I'll fight for you if this man comes to you. Uh, I'm, I don't live in New York, so good luck. But um... <laughs> <laughs> all my segues are hacky about uh, patches trying to make some sort of deep impact. So, Katie, save me. Talk about deep impact. Well, uh, so we're at the summer of 1998 now. Uh, this is the summer I graduated from eighth grade. I pulled out my eighth grade journal from the top shelf <gasps> in my closet and to see if I had written about deep impact. Because at this point in my life, Titanic had come out six months earlier. That was my radicalization at the movies moment. This is when I was subscribing to Entertainment Weekly and like, you know, anticipating the Oscars and all that stuff. And I did write that I went to see Hope Floats the day the eighth grade let out with a bunch of my friends at the movie theater. Um, oh, I right. don't remember that movie. Mae Whitman in it. Uh, so maybe we should have watched it for synchronicity. Um, <laughs> directed by Forrest Whitaker. That's right. Um, didn't know that at the time. Um, but yeah, this is the eighth grade that I'm about to turn 14. This is the p- prime period in my life. And I think a lot of our lives where I just went to the movies all the time. The movie theater. So where I saw Titanic was the downtown, like old movie theater. that was kind of crappy. Like it should have been a movie palace, but it wasn't. And they tore it down a couple years later. But I, I remember seeing Deep Impact out at the mall. There was the mall movie theater that for some reason was in a separate building from the actual mall. I don't know why. It was like across the street. Like you couldn't walk from the mall to the movie theater, but it was our like eight screen multiplex. It was just where you saw everything. Like I remember seeing tons of movies there with my parents, tons of movies there with my friend. I meant to call my mom to ask her if she just drove me out to the fucking mall movie theater all the time because I just remember being there <laughs> constantly. But I think like my grandparents drove me. I would like sleep over at a friend's house and their friend, their parents would drive us. And so the movies I remember seeing so specifically this summer was the Truman Show and Deep Impact. And they are like twinned in my brain as like if we weren't going to go see one, we were going to go see the other. I feel like I saw Deep Impact four times. And I feel like I also saw the Truman Show four times. It probably wasn't that much for both, but I definitely saw them repeatedly. Like I pull up Deep Impact the other night and it shows a wolf who's at his lab discovering that this comet is coming. And I'm like, he's going to eat some pizza. I know he's got like a pizza that he's going to be eating while he looks at his computer. And he did because I just had this sense memory of this dude eating this pizza. Um, 
And it came out the same summer as Armageddon, famously. It came out first. I definitely saw Armageddon in theaters. I don't have that many memories of it. Like, it kind of came and went for me. And I don't remember why I liked Deep Impact so much, other than that it was just, like, the movie that was there that we all saw. Um, like, I didn't have... It's like, got a great romance between people who were roughly our age, <laughs> which I think goes a long oh, way. Oh, with Elijah when Lily Sobiak. Uh, yeah. I'm like, yeah. wait, Natalia Leone was not 14 <laughs> yeah. when I saw this movie. <laughs> but it, it's... Uh, yeah, it wasn't like Titanic where it was like, you know, you have like a crush on Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, it didn't work that way. I mean, there's definitely something, I think, when you're 14. Well, it's you're emo. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, like, it's like, what if the world ended? It's where would so I sad. go? Who would I call? Like, what would I go? I mean, so at 14, you're kind of playing with those thoughts, being like, well, good thing nothing bad will ever happen to me. Uh, and then watching it, like, as a parent, but I think probably oh anytime God. as an adult, it's devastating. <laughs> this movie is just, like, stressful, and it makes you contemplate, like, actual end of the world and it's not it is a downer because you know it's got it leads up to this like big disaster thing where the tidal wave comes over the entire east coast it's stressful you're watching these like astronauts but they earned a whole a whole bunch of people like (laughs) deciding to die heroically like you see that repeatedly like a whole bunch of people like saying goodbye to their children probably for the last time or like reconnecting with their loved ones like Sherry Stringfeld, who is it's on the, the logi- I mean, like, like people don't give the logistics of these movies enough credits. The logistics are what make them sink under your skin and sort of wreck your psyche for what a while. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's exactly what Kitty was just talking. I mean, I think when I think of Deep Impact, I do think of the logistics. I think of the phone calls the family receives from the government about being pre-selected right. for the So I was going to say the most devastating saying, scene in this is when Tay Leone has to go. Everyone on over fifty is not going yeah, to the on ark. The air. Sorry, you're not you're, even in the running the, for the ark. <laughs> the most devastating moment in this movie, I think, is, that's a close second. The other is another very similar Taylioni moment that I quote uh, perversely and in a way that no one really picks up on, nor would I expect them to, all the time, which is Taylioni reading the blast from the government and saying, that's it. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. And like realizing that like the government, even though the government does end up saving you know, the portion of humanity that survives in this movie, uh, or at least I guess a lot of people survive uh, who aren't on the Eastern seaboard, but they do end up building the Ark and that seems like a good plan. Um, The idea that like there isn't some savior that you don't know about that is really just there to be sort of uh, your guardian angel. The government is really as, as fucked. How do you think this uh, plan, something I thought about while watching deep impact in 2021 is how would this plan go over today? Like if, if the president was like, Sorry, everyone over 50 is going to get fucked and we're going to choose like artists and craftspeople and scientists to save. I feel like this is just this would not. What do you mean? How would it go over today? It would go over the exact same way. It would like people would be fine with that decision. People are not fine with that decision. They have to send armored guards to pick up the people. Yeah, but it's not like swarmed by other people. It's not a political issue. well, I mean, it doesn't have time to be a political issue. Yeah. Like, uh, it, I think it would be very similar. We just would have seen the parts where the government had to start shooting people. Yeah. Which I think happens in this movie. It's heavily implied. Just, it's, it's implied. It just doesn't actually happen on the... This movie has no levity. The, the entire way through... I don't what are you talking about? A, they cast that, that, Elijah Woods just so you can be like, hey, that kid, John, look at John him. Favreau no, goes when, in space. That's true. When, in, Dave, in the scene when they call people to let them know uh-huh. that uh, they've been pre-selected, uh, that one guy, I think it's, uh, what's his face? from West Wing? From the West Wing. Oh, Richard yeah. Schiff. Yeah, uh, he, Elijah Woods dad. Yeah, Richard Schiff stands up and they're like, where are you going? He's like, I'm going home. Like, maybe they could oh, be no, calling. Richard and Schiff it's funny, it doesn't sound... 
doesn't sound funny now that I'm saying it, but it is funny. It's played for laughs in the moment. Played for laughs in the moment. It's played to be sad in the moment because this entire movie is mad at the generation in power. The generation above them, misunderstood. The generation below them, that's where all the hope is. Middle generation, fucked us. We're just like, we're king shit. Nothing's going to hurt us. Random comment comes along and fucks you. The people who built the pop mail server that didn't work <laughs> and killed poor Wolf when like the internet should be fine. Uh, like MSNBC is like seemingly already using like all of the different lines and whatnot. It's just like, it seems like uh, everybody is sort of like let down by humanity. And then Robert Duvall is just like, oh, or... And then everybody's kind of bet good with it. But it's like uh, the movie, that, the point of the movie that really hit me is when Elijah Wood and... Uh, Lily Sobieski. Lily Sobieski are reunited because uh, Elijah Wood, like, dirt bikes to find the family. As soon as he gets there, the family immediately is just like, we made a mistake, can't keep the family together, give the baby to the girl, get the girl on the bike, that get him out of here as fast yeah, as possible. Me Devast- up. It's devastating. Because the dad, the entire time, seems like he's trying to keep the family together. He's the guy who like, stands up, like maybe they're calling right now. And this whole idea that you know they could get married to maybe keep the family together. The idea that that hope dies off screen and it's so immediately obvious when they get back together, that's the part of the movie that kills me. Or the stuff at the end with Tay Leone where it's just like... The, the, the moments when people embrace their deaths. Because unlike... You know, they are embracing heroic deaths, but unlike Independence Day, they aren't deus ex machina out of it. Like, yeah, and like, they die. I was thinking about, because I watched Independence Day after this, like, when Harvey Firestein dies on Independence Day, like, he's in traffic, like, getting hit by a fireball from... Oh, like, crap. Like, exactly. Like, he's a character <laughs> who we like, but it's like, the tone of the movie is such that we can see him die and not feel bad about it. Like, every time you see someone die in Deep Impact, you're just like, oh, my God, they're families. Like, I, you feel it yeah. so much. But it doesn't feel... I mean, I guess it feels sentimental but like it feels it doesn't throughout it doesn't feel sentimental did any of you see greenland last year no that you liked that right i did and it's a movie i i think i must have cited it in my review of green i must have cited deep impact because the parallels are so obvious but like that feels like one of the only other sci-fi movies since all of that scale since deep implant deep impact Deep Impact, the Ben Platt story. <laughs> um, the, uh, deep Impact to really put the human cost of um, a, a natural disaster in to the fore like that. And it's it's so harrowing. I mean, Katie, exactly what I was talking about in terms of Independence Day, and I was really sort of um, contriving to, to bring to this cartoonish movie, is so present and real here. Yeah. How do you think this movie, Katie, gets away with being so talky? And like, it's not Armageddon. There's not funny montages with a bunch the of the first half hour team. of this movie is an amazing thriller it's a political of a thriller. journalist who yeah, accidentally feels, discovers yeah. it feels like world. michael crichton true to michael crichton i mean spielberg tried to make mm-hmm. this into a movie first and i would imagine yeah. he saw crichton-esque elements to the script that he was developing um and yeah it's so dry but i'm really into it like i'm really into taylor leone's investigation and her conversation like interrogating james cromwell about what she thinks is a is an affair like this stuff is intriguing i'm shocked it works but maybe that's the the mimi letter magic i don't know what do you what do you think works about the first half of the movie no it's like it makes me think about how like jurassic park is talky when you like when you think about there are so many movies from that period where it's like we're going to take the time to set up this story and how this is working with these adults and like james cromwell is selling the emotional impact of it you got morgan freeman 
Freeman as like the completely unimpeachable president. Like it's interesting that in Independence Day, Bill Pullman's like, well, they all think I'm weak. Like I need to like prove my strength. And Morgan Freeman's like, no, I I know everything. Like I am exactly who <laughs> that's you a want very, to be. That's a the absolutely right choice of words. Yeah, it's, it's and you know unimpeachable. And he, ge- <laughs> and he gives that speech near the end. And he was like, well, the rockets failed. It's over. Goodbye, everybody. And you're like, whoa, that is a terrible. <laughs> you're not supposed speech. to say that. <laughs> there's a there's a whole scene where he just walks out of the Oval Office and nobody else moves. It's crazy. Sorry, guys, we're fucked. I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Well, well you elected feel... me to tell you when we're fucked. <laughs> you're fucked. I mean, I've never grown up as a citizen of another country, but that does feel like a uniquely American sense of disappointment. Like it's somehow failing the myth that America, hmm. certainly our government, seeks to project at all times of having the solution of policing the world, of being sort of infallible in a way. And that I think, you know, also what I was saying earlier about Taylioni reading that note, I mean, that moment of letdown of like, like you thought we had an option C that was going to come in and save everything in the last day, because that's sort of been bred into us as an idea um, that, you know, and, and, and in the movie is just like, no, like we, we don't have the answer for this. Well, we, and, we're doing the best we can. And who can't relate to this more? And after the past year, we were like, well, I mean, coronavirus is around, but like you can't shut down society because of this. We're like, right. oh, no, you can't. Like things can change so much. And the people who you thought were in charge can really fuck it up. Like that hit me hard this time. Like not it's a different well, I would level. Say even even more in a more pronounced way, the stuff involving the election uh, when you're really seeing mm-hmm. the, the pillars of power fail and crumble um, just because a little bit of force has been applied to them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, it resonates all the same to vote. Although there is this really moving thing where they, they build the rocket that, uh, first of all, a space crew that contains Blair Underwood, John Favreau and Robert Duvall cannot fail. Like that is a power <laughs> group. Um, but it's got like old weapons from the Cold War. Like they have nukes that I think the Russians have worked with them on it. So there's this like post Cold War, like the world unites thing to it. Um, that's part of Independence Day too. a big part of Arrival. Like I like the it's a little bit of current events uh, tossed into this, you know, kind of fantastical version of the world. Yeah, that post-Cold War, pre-9-11 yeah. gray space where we could have hackers and shit and aliens, comets. Yeah, me, God. I mean, if this had happened in, like, 2016, it would have been, like, the China comet. Oh, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We would have just been all finger-pointing as we waited for our end. Yeah. Uh, but my question, Katie, watching this movie, is why didn't they just send up a, a team of oil riggers I mean, to the uh, to the comet? Well, you know, a young man named Michael Bay <laughs> rather had than the same training question. some astronauts to drill. He uh, had sending Robert Duvall back into space in his seventies. Sure. Um, you know, Michael Bay saw this movie and, and made Armageddon in like two months just to turn it around. It was pretty incredible. <laughs> <laughs> pretty incredible effort. Um, I mean, I think I thought Deep Impact held up incredibly well. I, it sounds like you guys all agree. Yeah, the only thing is. It's not that I don't like the Biederman storyline. It's just it, like the Jeff Goldblum, is the odd one out uh, in this movie where it gives us a lot of great stuff. It gives us that um, perspective of the every man, middle America family, um, which we definitely need. But uh, uh, he, he's just the dude that was looking through a telescope. That might be the Spielberg impact more than anything yeah, the idea yeah. Of, like, having like the, the, impact the, the on kid the center family. character yeah because like it's not really his family's emotional development it's her family like they're the ones who have to make that like wrenching decision um he's but i like just, having like... him there because the generational divide is so important to the choice the country makes like hmm. we need to see a, a family split up or we need to see the hard choices being made based on the circumstance i, I like having those two yeah 
There yeah. is a little bit of like a Wonder Years flavor to that family and how they have to sort of uh, go their separate I would love ways to see a, cut, a recut of, like, of this with like the Wonder Years voiceover and be like, remember when we had that whole comet thing? <laughs> yeah, well, they are, they're, leaning, they're leaning really hard on sort of a mid-century idea of the nuclear family that was eroding towards the the middle end of the 90s. Wow, interesting. And I mean, there's... Oh, sorry, finish your sentence, David. No, and it's just, it's very... It, it's really traumatic to see... Uh, that that family splinter apart at the end and like the parents saying goodbye to their kids knowing or not knowing i guess in terms of elijah wood's parents knowing that they're never going to see him again um except they do having to go to that highway and wait for the wave to come they survive the the water don't they his family know they're they're in the ark Uh, they're in the ark family right right um also credit and they have her baby yeah no the baby um Credit to the movie for like hitting the wave, and then Morgan Fre- like it doesn't catch up with Elijah Wood or any of the other characters. Just like, and this movie's over. Goodbye. Like Morgan Freeman's right. going to send us on home. It's just really exactly the way it should have been. Hey, there's hope. There's a reason to to think about the future now. That's his good speech. He gives him the bad one when everyone's fucked, and then uh, he gets a good one. Um, I just uh, why'd they call the comet Wolf? But Biederman? the waters <laughs> receded. Mm-hmm. Every time they say the Wolf Beaterman comet. I, I get taken out of the movie. That's, you, that's get, the uh, one, you get taken back fault. into the mask. Yeah, I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> oh, yeah? What was the name of the comet in uh, Armageddon? I don't know. Do you, wait, is zip, it? Zip, boom. Zip, boom. Uh, boom. It's true. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> um, come up the comet in Armageddon was named like Larry or something. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever Michael Baker come Steve up Buscemi with. Steve Buscemi, too. <laughs> um, David, you bringing up the nuclear family is where I was going to try to make a ham-handed transition into our next movie, but Dave should uh, pick it up from there. Oh, wow. Well, going from the nuclear family to a family that gets nuked early on in this movie, uh, don't worry, they're both fake. It's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, brought to you this week by Matt Patches. But it seems like a movie that I'm cursed to constantly revisit every couple of years. Uh, So here we go, Patches. Why this time are we coming around to the Indiana Jones movie that outside of times I'm specifically talking about it, I claim does not exist. Yeah, this is a movie I feel like we're constantly contending with because even watching it now, I'm like, is it good? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it bad? It's it's there's a lot going on in this movie. And when we were prompted to think of a blockbuster, a summer blockbuster that um, had some sort of of narrative around it, uh, you know, most of the blockbusters I went to see, I'm like you, Katie. I was just at the movies all the time as a kid. I don't I don't know if the moments registered as much as like. Uh, the movies themselves. So I, I couldn't think of any good stories of positive experiences of seeing big movies in the movie theater. But I can remember the first time I felt just tremendously disappointed um, by a big, big movie. And that was going to see Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the year 2008. Um, I had just gotten out of, of college, I guess. I would have That would have been the time. And um, I saw this movie with all of my film school buddies we were out in the real world and um we got to see this at the Ziegfeld theater in wow. New York City um I think we've talked about the I Ziegfeld a little yeah I mean I'm sure it, it was playing on the one screen in the Ziegfeld I'm sure we talked about this theater a few times but this is this is the movie palace of all movie palaces it it sat 1152 people you never saw it full and I was there on opening night for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull with all of my friends, um, and I, it was packed. I mean, every seat was – there was an ass in every seat, and just 
losing our minds as we were counting down the minutes for this showing of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull to start. We could not be more excited for a new Indiana Jones movie, especially my buddies. We, we love the Indiana Jones movies. They're all special in different ways. Um, I cherish them to this day. I think they're immaculate. I've had long conversations with Josh Trank about how they're not art. Um, I should put not put Humble too brag. many. Wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that, that blew my mind too about how, you know, Raiders is not, it's not really art. It's, crass commerce and Spielberg digging himself out of a hole. And um, I should maybe have seen the Indiana Jones movies in that way, that they are just complete product, mass entertainment, perfectly created. I mean, the great action scenes of all time. But uh, in conversation with Trank, he really opened my eyes to being like, oh, yeah, 1941 bombed. And Spielberg was like, George Lucas saved my career. And they made Raiders together. And then they made sequels to movies that were already like throwbacks. And just like, was it supposed to be a genre exercise or was it supposed to be a, a franchise? Like, what is Indiana Jones? It it's probably everything we hate. how good Kingdom of the yeah. Crystal Skull is. <laughs> I, well, I will say that in the lead up to seeing it at the Ziegfeld Theater, um, I couldn't have been more excited and I could not have been more disappointed having seen the film, um, which I just thought was a pale imitation of everything I liked about those first three Indiana Jones movies from the way uh, Janos Kaminsky shot the movie, from the way the hacky jokes that I didn't think were part of this franchise to the way Harrison Ford seemed to have completely aged out from the era of like the 1950s. I just did not give a shit the way I wanted to see Indiana Indiana Jones punch Nazis and stuff like that. Everything that could have felt wrong about an Indiana Jones movie was wrong in this Indiana Jones movie. And I walked out so mad. I just I couldn't believe how much I had hated it. And I saw it in the perfect place with the perfect crowd. And I will never forget just how steamed I was. Walking back, we had driven there and we walked to a car- parking garage and we were just like slamming doors and being I was so such in foul mood. Um, Being a recent college then, graduate with a car in New York City, what the hell is going on? So we had a friend who had a car. I don't know. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> I mean, it was very convenient. There's always one friend who has a car because there's not a lot of subways around there. And but to drive town, to the you know? Zig, what? To the Zigfeld? That's a great question. I mean, she had a car. I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm like the Amish. I'm like the Amish. I was a college student. And if someone offers me a ride in a car, I'm going to take oh, it. Oh, I got a ride home from a party in Brooklyn to the Upper West Side one night. And it was like a miracle. Right, we're, like, we're, all getting, we're all delaying <laughs> that just inevitable, inevitable realization that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull totally fucking rules. I don't think it rules. Right. I First off, I don't think it rules. Second, I reread your essay on this topic. In, what is, it? is it in reverse shot or where can people read yes. this? Reverse, uh, in reverse shot. Reverse I don't shot. think you thought it was fucking awesome. It's definitely a consideration no, in the defense. Don't. Of, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know that our like joke is that you go to bat for this movie, but I'm like, this way. I do go to bat for it. I think you just detected a theme in the movie. Is my takeaway from and in your the essay first, in the first half specifically? Right. My, my, well, you think no, it's about family? I, I, I also, I mean, I, I did detect a theme, a theme. Uh, but I also found the the sort of kinetic velocity of the movie in the first half of the movie, even the shitty, you know, jungle chase it comes in the second half carries this momentum forward but like the just the the kineticism in live action that spielberg had brought to tintin um i guess he brought to tintin a few years later but uh that same no. sort of flow is in there particularly in the first half of this Wrong. movie everything up to and including the uh f- like egregiously lambasted nuking of the fridge which is no, that seems one great. of the better yeah. moments in spielberg's filmography it is absolutely outrageous that it became a punchline because that entire sequence 
fucking so I'm agreeing rules. with you and disagreeing with you here because I think there this movie is full of cool moments. It's cool of uh, that the the nuking of the fridge is an amazing screenshot. I love seeing Indiana Jones against the the nuke cloud, um, and that whole sequence is really rad. But what you're talking about with the like Tintin. Uh, the tintinization of live action, no dice. This movie is just full of contradictions. Every second, I'm like, oh, they're racing through. They're going to do a, a chase scene in his around his college. Like, this is a cool twist on everything we know about Indiana Jones. And that scene is really neat. And and then uh, you get to the swing in the vines. And I'm like, not no, not quite. Like, gonna, you're I'm not gonna, computer generated enough to be in the scene. I'm going to find the I'm going to find the mid ground between you two because this is like uh, I think I feel like raisin. I'm in the mid ground. That's what's confusing. Yeah. Uh, this, is like a, this is like an oatmeal raisin cookie, but the person eating it doesn't like raisins because you're like, oh, fuck yeah, fuck yeah. You taught him how to, you know, he fenced at school so he could fight Kate Blanchett with the sword. This is going to be like fucking great. And it's like, okay, wait, but monkeys. And you're like, no, I don't want to wait for monkeys. <laughs> and then. I, I detest that, the monkeys. And then right that, well, right, but the then movie that gets sequence... off on a wrong foot by having a CG gopher popping out of the. That's like the worst possible starting Yeah, point. but then it gets on the right foot in the best possible way by introducing, as Kate alluded to, as, Kate, as uh, Dave alluded to a few minutes ago, Kate Blanchett as Irina Spalko. You gotta love Dave had a second part of his sentence. Yeah, sorry. Which is that if you take the parts that I actually don't like about this movie and you pull them out, they never needed to be there. Mm-hmm. Which is why this movie's frustrating. Is because it's like they sat down, they're like, let's do another Indiana Jones. And someone's like, fine. And George Lucas like, it's about aliens. And Steven Spielberg's like, you know, fine. There's been like light supernatural stuff and all the other ones. It's been Christian supernatural. It's been like weird Orientalism, international uh, supernatural uh, so this time we're just going to do uh, Mayans and aliens. It's like that in its own seems like it could be workable. But then you have pieces like there's a tribe of natives that exist within this lost city that are scared of the crystal skull, but also only exist just to be shot a few moments later. So we know that the bad guy's still bad, even though we've been watching this movie for two hours. There are little seconds about that. Like every time the movie feels like it's really picking up this like like little scene that seems like it would be obviously crap to whoever was looking at it. They're in the camp with Valco or with um, the Kate Blanchett and she gives Indy the skull and makes him look into it. And then Mutt's like, Oh fuck, we're getting out of here. And he knocks over the table and they all run and immediately fall in the quicksand for a snake joke. And the way out of that is they are recaptured and brought back to the camp. And I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? Yeah. That's that quicksand scene makes me insane. He would have decapitated that snake. Like, that is the most ineffective way to get someone out of quicksand. And I know we all come to Indiana Jones for logical physics, but it drove me crazy because it's so hokey. It's so pointless. But here's the thing about that scene, too. It's You're right. The, like, it's too goofy as an action set piece, but it's actually very funny, too. I was laughing a lot in this movie. Harrison Ford is good, I think. And he, what is his line in that scene where he starts, he just starts talking like a grandpa. He's like, I think I can touch the bottom. Yeah, he just starts explaining quicksand to everyone, and I'm like, this is the shtick. This is what I needed a lot more of, like, grandpa talk to Mutt Williams throughout this movie. Um, He is not a debonair anymore. He needs to be grandpa, and uh, it has those moments. Harrison Ford can be quite good in this movie. Um, Shia's not terrible in this movie. He's not given a whole lot of great moments, but it's not his fault. He kind of disappears in the movie for me. I I didn't really register Mutt. I mean, his whole character is, even if I 
found some sort of thematic reason for him existing. Uh, Mutt Williams from the name on down is, as I was Dr. Mutt Williams. No, I don't. The Shia LaBeouf of it all. They were really trying to make that happen. Um, Spielberg was, was really driving that plow uh, with this and Transformers. And Who um, thought that 2008 children wouldn't find greasers instantly cool just because oh, they I, hate, their I hate the decade so much. The decade choice is what really bothers me at the, my core uh, well, in this rewatch. Like, the way that this movie, the way the first half of this movie moves, I, I really just, I love. Um, and I think that it really only tips into... Uh, the wrong side of the CGI cartoonishness in the second half when things really go kind of tits up and that, that, that jungle alien. chase scene. Uh, there is a chase scene. To be- <laughs> I mean, there's a chase scene in the beginning of uh, the new Fast and Furious movie that if only because of its location and the copious use of CGI reminded me a little bit too much of this. Oh, no. But uh, yeah, brace yourselves. Um, but there's there's a lot more going on in this movie than people gave it credit for. And eternally, it will bother me how much people turned the fridge thing into a punchline when it was like, you know, one. I guess I guess people were mean to it, but they were mean to it for the reasons that Patches outlined at the beginning, which is that this is this is Indiana Jones four. This isn't old man meets his son and they go on an adventure together. You know, this isn't even the the frustrating thing is this isn't really even have anything to say about the fucking aliens. Like, Mm. I don't know why. Knowledge was their treasure, Dave. George Lucas had, Ooh. I mean, there's a great story in the, uh, in Seth Rogen's memoir that just came out, yearbook, about meeting with George Lucas, I think shortly after this movie came out, and him being serious, like seriously uh, believing that the world was going to end in 2012 uh, when the Mayan calendar did. And this ties into Roland Emmerich, and maybe it's a story <laughs> that brings this whole episode together. But George Lucas was really on one in the first, like, seven to 12 years of the century. And I think was pushing for some ideas that Steven Spielberg was kind of sitting in the back and rolling his eyes at. Um, and I, I don't want to throw all the blame at George Lucas and give Steven Spielberg all the credit, but I also want to do that. I mean, Spielberg <laughs> I made mean, great movies right before this. He made great re- movies right after this. Like clearly he was with well within control of his powers for other stuff. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. I think this is Nobody experimental. Tin- it's experimental for I him. I do think that Tintin was kind of a second uh, a second bite at the apple at this kind of mm-hmm. kineticism, at this kind of action movie flow. Um, and he was able to do it with more control and with less pressure um, and with less baggage. And he went full CGI. I mean, this so is his Phantom loved. Menace, isn't it? Isn't this him being like, I have a new set of tools. I think I can make a new kind of movie with this iconic yeah. character. I mean, I mean, only yes, worse. but you could blame the same person for both of those things. Right. No, that's what I'm saying. It gets a, it yeah. still gets away from someone who knows their franchise at the core. Like George Lucas is the reason Star Wars, Empire, and Return of the Jedi are good. Um, maybe uh, earlier ones more than Return of the Jedi. But like Phantom Menace gets away from him because his toolbox and his, his experimentation, what he's chasing, is not in line with what people enjoy about – the I movies. would say that, and, and, yes. as, and, and Phantom Menace has improved over time because it now stands alone. Actually, it's no, a- I, I'm going to say they have different problems because Phantom Menace is like they think they want Star Wars, but I know what they want. And they want this, and we are all like, "What the fuck is this? This is they think they want Indiana Jones. What do I think is Indiana Jones to me? And it's not. It turns out it's not close. What Indiana Jones is to George Lucas is like a celebration of serials and like dumb action beats and like things that are like sort of woven together. And I think it's like Steven Spielberg of the two of them that would have understood that there are certain things that you have to give here 
to make it like a franchise. There, yes. there, there are smart yes, things. Karen that happen. Allen. <laughs> yeah, but no, no. There's smart also, things that happen here where he re- and... they reference the, 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 the what happened to him during the war. They reference Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. The idea that. Indiana Jones lives this like you know life of many adventures, and we're peeking in on this one because he has a son. I could see how that seemed like a good idea to everybody. Just I don't know how it got sprinkled in with all this other shit to get so but far there, from there, Last Crusade, which was also a generational thing. There is definitely an element of Steven Spielberg having a new box of tools to play with and not entirely understanding how to uh, weave them into his old bag of tricks. And he has, like other filmmakers of this generation, you know, Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola, um, George Lucas, obviously, but Spielberg is as guilty of this as anyone, becoming a little bit, you know, bored of the old ways and wanting to be a pioneer and feel like they're still in the vanguard and not becoming an old man. And I think that hopefully um, – the nadir of that hopefully will continue to be ready player one, but he wasn't quite there yet. I mean, he hadn't, he was not hitting bottom here, even for people who hold the Indiana Jones sacred, I would argue, uh, because ready player one is a worse. Oh, I, I totally respect. agree with, with that. Um, he was still it's in crazy. reality. He made Munich right before this, which is three years and three years before this he made Munich. And then three years after this, he made Tintin given the rate he usually works. Like that's a long gap for Spielberg. It's just mm. wild. What a huge well, amount of time yeah. this movie took up. Well, he Tintin was so it took a long time, right? I mean, whatever. We don't need to get into it. But Tintin was one of two movies that came out in the same month that Spielberg released. Yeah. So, uh, what was you know, the other one? Warhorse, Warhorse, and then yeah. Lincoln was a year later. The man. Works. Um, so, who's excited yeah. for the fifth one? So, all right, update me Not on this thing. I. It's being yeah. directed by James Mangold. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Harrison Ford is in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who else is in it? Not Mutt Williams. Not Mutt Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's her name from Fleabag? Phoebe Waller Bridge. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember who else is in it. I think that's all we know. For and then sure. has it filmed? It's going no. to film soon, but it's okay. definitely. I mean, after it Crystal like it's Skull, it's going happen. to be like the Force Awakens of this franchise. They they're going to try and keep Indiana Jones going, but with who new... owns Indiana Jones? Lucasfilm, Disney, Disney, Disney does. Okay, but are they these movies on Disney Plus? Uh, no. no. They're not on Disney Plus. No, you, I, you nor are the go. Young Indiana Jones Chronicles yet. But someday, knock on wood. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to to wrap up here, I think watching Kingdom Crystal Skull with fresh eyes and divorced from my excitement for the movie, which is what blockbuster movies can sometimes put us in a bad headspace unexpectedly, where we're like, we're really excited to see a new franchise installment or a thing that we've been waiting for so long to see and have it be realized for us. That can be a negative headspace when you're in a movie theater full of people who are amped. We're spending a lot of time right now, as we should, celebrating movies and the theatrical space as like the pristine place to see these have these experiences i think that they can actually be negative sometimes when we drive ourselves and we hype ourselves up and i think looking back at kingdom of the crystal skull now if i can separate it if i can just watch it as a movie it's entertaining uh if i can if i can not bring the baggage to it i don't i don't want i don't want that height to be taken away from you i'm gonna say i'm gonna not endorse what you just said Mm. get excited for movies that you want to see Bring all your friends, put them in a car oh. in Manhattan for some fucking reason. <laughs> Go out there. And she then, had you know, a car. What was I supposed to do? Turn it down? <laughs> and, then, and then if it's bad, you all get to have that experience That's together. True. But mm-hmm. I'm not going to let I'm George not Lucas and Spielberg off, off the, no, off no, the no. hook. No, no, no. I'm not They're arguing. the ones that messed up here. I'm not you arguing a against job. hype. 
get hype. Be hyped for the movies. I'm just saying it can it can work against you in a movie that might be good. I mean, we were just so hard on Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull. Not that we who cares? Like go as hard as you want. But looking back now, I'm not going to watch it again <laughs> ever. <laughs> but maybe not ever. That's what I said last uh, it has time. Its I moments. watched Game of Skull. <laughs> I I remember this and then Spider Man Three the summer before being these back to back like oh, we damn. are so hyped experiences and walking up being like this was what yeah. Sandman. Uh, I don't remember. I'm sure there was some that came out because this is right before I was like seeing press screenings regularly um, for work. So I was like just saw it with my friends. I mean, but 2008 I, was a crazy year. We got Iron Man right after this, and then we got the Dark Knight the yeah. same year. No the wonder fact that this came out the, the same year as the no legacy. Yeah, the fact that this came out the same year as Dark Knight is insane. They feel like they're made on different planets. <laughs> I still remember the dark, the like watching the Dark Knight the first time with my family and the lights coming up and just being like, "Holy shit, we're all gonna want to watch that again." I think that does it. That does it. Yeah, for that does it. Fighting in the War number 350. Before wow. we join you guys next week to talk about our, or rejoin our normal schedule, uh, where can people Mayor find... Mayor of Easttown. Mayor of Easttown. Happening where, next week. Where can people find more of your work online? We're going to start with Patches. I'm Matt Patches. I'm a senior editor at Polygon. Dot com, where I'm also producing another podcast that you should go listen to called Galaxy Brains, hosted by MST3K's Jonah Ray and writer Dave Schilling. It's awesome, and it's short. It's only like 30 to 40 minutes. It's actually perfect if you already listen to a lot of podcasts. But uh, And I'm also on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And remember, we have fightinginthewarroom.com, whereas Dave said we have all the old quarter quells, which I think probably hold up and won't get us canceled or some shit. Um, so go listen to those, uh, fightinginthewarroom.com. And David Ehrlich. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. Uh, I am the senior film critic for IndieWire. You can find me writing about F9, which I alluded to in this episode, and in the Heights, and the Moby Doc. Uh, did you know that <laughs> it's called the Moby There's Doc? Moby and his, Doc? Name, his nickname is Moby. It's called Moby Doc, the Moby Doc, because he is allegedly the great, 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 great grandnephew of Herman Melville. Anyway. Uh, don't don't rush to find that film, but maybe my review will be interesting. Um, anyway, I'm on Twitter at David Ehrlich. I'm on Instagram at David Ehrlich if you just want to look at photos of my son, which is a much, much better way of interpolating my uh, persona on the internet. Um, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Uh, go to Fighting in the War Room on iTunes. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show in m- most normal episodes, not in our quarter quells. But uh, if you're listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to hearing from you there. <laughs> and Katie Rich. Uh, I am Katie Rich. I'm at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast where we're doing an Oscar rewatch series. So if you like us talking about old movies on this show, you should listen to us do that on Little Gold Men. We're doing this week's on Chicago. Next week's is on Quiz Show. Who knows where we might go after that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you should just tell us what you think about these movies. That's it. And uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DS7E. You could listen to me talk about Lost on the Storm of Lost Rewatch podcast. We're in the final season. And, uh, of course, keep keep listening here. Thanks. See you later. He's very confused by you throwing me first.
fun. I'll tell you when I'm done. When the world is found, pooba pooba. When the world is found, my fair lady, I'm done.